Good morning. Uh, it's always a joy to worship with this church family every Lord's Day. And uh, just a word of welcome to those of you who are joining us or visiting us, maybe from uh, near and far. And we're thankful that the Lord has brought you here uh, to this service to, to join us for worship. We pray that uh, this morning that you would be encouraged uh, by uh, just our, our time together. Uh, I'm, I've been really excited just to be able to uh, preach to you the, this particular passage uh, of Scripture. And so uh, I want to invite for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. And we are continuing the, the second part of our two-part series uh, in, in this uh, particular story in Mark 5. Many years ago, there was a Canadian scientist by the name of G.B. Hardy who wrote a book about his search for true religion. And in it, he said, I have but two questions in regards to this search. One, has death been conquered? And two, has it been conquered for me? He said that is the question that anyone should ask with regard to choosing a religion. Has anyone conquered death? And can that be applied to me? And in his search, he ended up in the only place anybody in that search will end up, and that is to Jesus Christ, who alone has triumphed over death and through his own resurrection conquers spiritual death as well for us for those who would put their trust in him. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they make it clear that Jesus is the Lord of life. And yet at the same time, he is also Lord over death, for he has power over death. Our Lord in his ministry made repeated claims about this very thing. And yet we know such claims aren't unique. There have been throughout history, and even today, those who claim that they've brought people back to life and that they have this power to raise the dead. One in more recent memory was a healer by the name of Oral Roberts. Speaking at a charismatic conference in 1987, he said, quote, I can't tell you all the dead people I've raised because there have been so many. But he specified this one time that a person died while he was preaching. And I don't know what that says about his preaching, okay? <laughs> but he stopped in the middle of his sermon. He said he went back to where this dead man was and raised him back to life. And he got back to the pulpit and started preaching again. But we know, right, with a supposed large number of people having been raised from the dead, you would think right, that somebody could give a testimony to validate that claim, and yet not one occurrence of his raising from the dead can be verified. In fact, Oral Roberts was challenged to produce the names and the addresses of the people he's raised, and he balked. And so we know it's one thing to make the claim to raise people from the dead, but it's a whole other thing to be able to do it. And yet Jesus proved this time and again in his life and ministry. There are recorded accounts on at least three occasions of Jesus showing his power over the great enemy, which is death. And he accomplishes this, but with a word, with a simple and single command. And it would culminate in the greatest demonstration of power over death with our Lord's own resurrection. As we arrive at this stage in Mark's gospel, we'll see the first of these instances. And in this passage we're looking at, chapter 5, it's the last part in a series of stories and miracles that give us insight into the power of Jesus. We saw a sort of progression take place. Where it began in chapter 4, we saw our Lord's power over nature as he controlled the wind and the waves. 
We then saw his power over demons in the Decapolis. We saw last time Jesus' power over disease as he heals this woman with the hemorrhage. And then here, again in progression, in this final portion of the text, we see his power over death. Certainly there has been no one who has ever lived, no figure in any religion that has displayed this kind of divine power. Our Lord, he stands alone. And it proves time and again that Jesus Christ, he is the Son of God. This morning, we'll be focusing on verses 35 to the end of the chapter. And as I mentioned last time, there are two stories found here, and it's arranged in a sort of sandwich. And what Mark does is he begins with the story and then leads into another story, and then he finishes that initial story that he began with. And so within this passage, there's a miracle that takes place within a miracle. And we got through half of this chapter last time, and so I'll recap a bit just to set the context for where we are, and then we'll pick it up right where we left off. And so let me read this narrative for us, beginning in verse 35. You can follow along in your Bibles. Mark chapter 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha komi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is always a joy to worship with the church, with your people, with God's family on the Lord's day. And we know that everything that we do here is an act of worship to you. And, Lord, we've had the privilege to worship through prayer, through fellowship, through giving, through the singing of songs. And now we worship through the hearing of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to listen intently, that we would receive your word humbly, that we might be changed to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I gave us three headings last time to walk us through this story, to kind of serve as a guide. Uh, We got through the first two, and so I want to recap those for us. And so if you're taking notes, first we, we saw a desperate plea made here. The setting Mark gives us is that Jesus has just returned from the healing of the demoniac and is then immediately met by a large crowd. And from the crowd, we're told that a man by the name of Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, a prominent leader in the community, emerges. And he comes to Jesus with a desperate plea. And it is the plea of all pleas for a father a crisis that any father here can relate to, where he falls down and says, Jesus, my little girl is dying. Heal her, please. Lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Here is a man at the end of the rope and nowhere to turn to. We don't know how Jairus 
knew that Jesus could heal her or would even heal her, but somehow he had heard of this Jesus who had performed miracles, who had healed before, this Jesus who had power over disease. And so Jairus comes to Jesus. We're told of our Lord's response to this plea in one simple phrase in verse 24. He went with him. No questions asked, no explanation, no hesitation. How kind of Jesus to go along. What a good God he is. He is our savior and friend time and again. He went with him. And he went with him at once. There's an urgency that they go with. They're making their way through the crowd for there is not a moment to waste. And and they go urgently because they're trying to reach Jairus' house where his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And as they're going, suddenly, as they're jostling through the crowd, they're stopped in their tracks. Because from the crowd is a woman who has a 12-year-old problem of her own. Mark tells us in verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This woman had an internal bleeding problem, most likely a menstrual hemorrhage. And she had been bleeding for 12 years, and her condition was beyond the help of any physician that she had seen. We're, in fact, told that she spent all that she had on these doctors, and instead of helping her, they made her worse. And what's important to understand is that not only was her problem physical, it was social. Because as a result of her bleeding, she was considered ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. And the law also stated that any person in contact with this woman in this circumstance who was bleeding, that person would be rendered unclean as well. And they would have to go through a cleansing ritual in order to be allowed back into the community. But for her, there was no such option because there was no stopping this bleeding. And hence, she was unclean. She was a social outcast. She was with the lepers and the blind and the rest of the unclean, alienated from all people who knew her. And she was subjected to live her sad existence in poverty and loneliness. We noted just how vastly different that she was from Jairus last time. These two are on different sides of the social spectrum. Jairus has a name and a position. As ruler of the synagogue, he had enough clout to summon Jesus to his house. He is a man of privilege and wealth and status. And this woman had none of these. Her name is not given or even remembered. And she has no position. Her only identification is her shame, a menstrual hemorrhage. See, we won't even know her name until we are in heaven and meet her face to face. Because she is known, again, as the woman who bleeds. She must approach Jesus as a result from behind, whereas Jairus approaches Jesus face to face. See, these two couldn't be any more different from each other, and yet they shared one thing. The one thing that joined them together was this. It was their affliction. This is the great equalizer in life. Suffering is no respecter of persons, no matter who you are, where you come from, and your background. Because pain and hardship and suffering affects every one of us. And Jairus and this woman are no exception. But here she demonstrates great faith in light of her condition. We see, secondly, a demonstrative faith that takes place here. She too heard about Jesus. And she thought to herself, if I touch even his garments, 
I may be made well. And so what happens is that as Jesus is moving through the crowd, this woman steals a touch from him and is immediately healed. And we read that Jesus realized at that moment that power had gone out of him. He knew that he had been touched in a particular way and that a healing had taken place as a result. And so Jesus stops the entourage, this emergency procession, and he turns around and says, who touched me? Who touched my garment? Realize our Lord knows who it is, but he's intending to draw this woman out of the crowd. He seeks her out. When this woman can no longer stand the gaze of Jesus, she steps forward. And it says that she told him the whole story of what had happened to her. See, the Lord wanted for her to make her faith demonstrative, for it to be public, for her benefit, but also for the benefit for, of all those who would hear testimony of what God had done in her life. So telling Jesus everything, notice how our Lord responds. What does he say? Verse 34, daughter. I mentioned this last time. Who's listening to this exchange? Jairus. And what's his problem? 12-year-old daughter. Remember, that they were supposed to be on their way to see his dying daughter. And meanwhile, Jesus is standing by. And Jairus is then having to wait anxiously and, and is frustrated at this because his daughter is dying, and yet the Lord is unhurried in tending to this woman. This woman has a chronic condition, yet she is getting attention instead of the little girl who has an acute condition. And we know there's a big difference between chronic and acute. And yet Jesus chooses to stop and talk with this woman who has just been healed. And you, you see this and you're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. It is absolutely irrational. In fact, it's worse than that. This is malpractice, right? The great physician is in some ways committing medical malpractice. Because if these two were in the same emergency room, any doctor who treated the woman first and let the little girl die would be sued. And Jesus is acting like a reckless physician here. Jairus and the disciples are thinking, well, what are you doing? Do you not understand the situation and the gravity of Jesus? We have to go. But Jesus is in no rush at all. And he is patient in his dealing with this woman and stands there and, and talks with her. And just as he is speaking, the story takes a turn for the worse. The very thing that Jairus feared would happen comes true. Verse 35, that while he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? How devastating this had to have been. How this father must have felt at that moment. His heart must have sunk to have hope and, and only to have it crushed, to be so close and yet so far. Right? And, and he's thinking if they weren't interrupted, if only we, we would have left sooner, if only there, were, there was more time. And now she's gone. But Jesus looks at Jairus calmly and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Have faith. There couldn't be a more comforting thing 
for this father to hear. Jesus says, trust me. See, God's grace never operates according to our schedule. You think about how every culture has a different sense of time. And that's one of the issues with weddings that are maybe cross-cultural. If one of you is from a culture where 15 or 30 minutes late is okay, and the other is from a culture where you're not allowed to be late at all, okay, one side's going to have a problem. You imagine they're waiting there for the wedding, and the bride or groom is not there on time. It's 15 minutes after. On one side, the family is nervous and saying that this is not okay, and on the other side, everybody's calm. Timing is relative. And everyone has a sense of this is the right time, this is okay, and this is not. God's sense of timing will always confound ours, no matter which culture you're from. His blessing never seems to come when you want it. His grace doesn't operate according to our schedule. And if you try to impose your understanding of timing on the Lord, you will feel a struggle. You will struggle to to feel loved by God. We will be frustrated because we believe that God's delaying irrationally, but he doesn't work according to how we think. And God will continue to be God, and he will not be hurried. And he will not be hurried at times because he loves us. Does that make sense? Sometimes he will lovingly withhold that very thing that we want at that time and place. And it's a great lesson that Jairus will learn here. That God is in this. He knows what he's doing. And he is at work. And his good plan for us is different than we might expect. And that can be scary. And it requires great faith. Because we so often don't see how it, or understand how what is so painful can be good. And yet our Lord says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Have faith. how much we need to hear this. In those moments when when times are hard and life isn't going the way you hoped and what you want is a good thing and yet God is seemingly withholding that very good thing from you. A job, a, a relationship, children, even a A friend. Or or he takes away something from you and and you don't understand why. And in those times, Jesus looks at us gently and says, I know you're hurting. Don't be afraid. Trust me. It's going to be okay. Do you trust him? He knows what he's doing. Do you believe that? He loves you. And he does what is best for you. He knows what you need better than you do. Do you believe that? You notice Jesus has just performed a miracle in front of Jairus. And yet Jairus' faith is, is wavering. Understandably, okay, because the circumstances have gone from difficult to almost impossible. But the Lord is, in effect, reminding him, do you see this woman and what I just did for her? Do you not know what I can do? Do you not know who I am? There's a reason that Jairus' story is sandwiched between the story of the woman. Because the Lord wants us to see that he does the impossible and the unexpected and that he is faithful. And he is telling Jairus, have faith in me. 
like this woman has faith in me. Jairus will soon learn a valuable lesson that, that we must all learn. And it's that when you go to Jesus, you might not get exactly what you asked for. But you might also get more than you asked for. Jairus goes to Jesus for the healing of his dying daughter, and Jesus will do much more than that. And so we go to the climax of the story here, and we've seen that the plot has thickened again, that even though this little girl is dead, Jesus looks at this father and says, I'm coming anyway. And it sets the scene thirdly for a divine touch. A divine touch that takes place. Look at verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So Jesus, he resumes his journey along with Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and they make it to the home of Jairus. But as they arrive, a funeral procession has already taken place. Mark describes to us that there's a loud commotion and weeping and wailing among a group of people there. And their presence speaks to the girl's deadness. Most likely, these weren't family and friends who gathered there. It was Jewish custom for professional mourners to be hired when there was a death. And that's what we have here. What they would do is that they would tear their garments and that they would weep and wail to create a context for family to express their mourning without any sort of embarrassment. And so you would find this very thing at every Jewish, Jewish funeral. In fact, the rabbis at that time said that even a poor man was required to have one professional mourner and two flute players when there was a, such a death. So there's this chaotic scene here. But Jesus comes in from the courtyard, and he asks them this in verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And what he said elicited a reaction. And it says, they laughed at him. See, if they knew one thing, these professional mourners knew the girl was dead. I mean, that's why they're there. And so when Jesus says this, they mockingly laugh. Are you being serious, Jesus? Because when you see her, you'll know how dead that she is. See, but what they didn't understand is our Lord was using sleep as a euphemism. Sleep is something temporary, right? It's a suspension of consciousness. But at some point and after some time, some longer than others, you'll wake up. And Jesus is saying for this girl, this is just sleep. It's temporary because of what I will do. The Apostle Paul, interestingly, he, he picks up on this language and, and he applies it spiritually when he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, to all those who sleep in Jesus will be caught up in the rapture. He's speaking of believers here, that, and what he's saying is that in Christ, death is temporary for us. It is like sleep. See, Jesus knew exactly what the situation was and exactly what he was saying. But they didn't get it. And they laughed. They mocked him. In some of your translations, they ridiculed him. And our Lord didn't take too kindly to that. It says in verse 40, he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, again being Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. 
Uh, let me pause and, and answer the, the question that some of you might have. It's a question of why. Why does Jesus limit the number of witnesses to what would be this dramatic event? Some might ask, well, isn't this miracle a great opportunity for evangelism? Right? Isn't Jesus seeking to get his message as widely as he can? So why does he close the door on those who convened for the death of Jairus' daughter? Right? If he had allowed them to see his miracle and power, wouldn't they have turned to Jesus and followed him? But here's the principle. If people don't trust in the words of Jesus, they won't believe the works of Jesus. If people don't trust in the words of Jesus, they won't believe his works. Our Lord has done all of these signs. He has already healed. He calmed the storms. He defeated demons. And a moment ago, he's healed this woman with a hemorrhage. And now he comes and says, this little girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. There was no point bringing them in. If you remember in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, this story illustrates this principle so well. In this story, Jesus, he gives a picture of the great divide between heaven and hell. And the rich man finds himself in hell while Lazarus finds himself in heaven. And the story goes that the rich man in hell pleads with Abraham, who's there, to let him go. But what does Abraham say? Abraham says, no, because your opportunity to repent and to believe in Christ was given during your lifetime. But there are no more second chances. There, there is no purgatory. There is no way to earn your way out. And so the rich man is resigned that it's too late for him. But then he turns his thoughts to his family. And he says, well, if it's too late for me, can you at the very least send Lazarus to my brothers and warn them, surely they'll repent and believe when they see this man come back from the dead. And this is what Abraham says. If they don't believe, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe in the Bible, even if someone comes back from the dead and goes to them, they still will not believe. And I've made this point numerous times before. This goes against unbelievers and skeptics who say that I don't believe in Jesus, but if God reveals himself to me, right, if he does a miracle right now, he shows himself, I will believe. And the reality is, no, you won't. If you don't believe in the gospel, Abraham says someone coming back from the dead won't change that hardened heart that you have. Because what you really want is not a sign. What you really want is to continue to live in your sin. So here in this account of Mark 5, it is of this girl who literally is going to come back from the dead. But Jesus knows that if these scoffers don't listen to his word, they will not be won over by his works, no matter how great it is, even in this instance of this girl coming back to life. And so that's why he limits the number of those he takes with him. And so in verse 40, Jesus leaving them aside, he took the child's father and mother instead, as well as Peter, James, and John, and he comes into the room, and Jesus takes the child by the hand and says two things to her. Verse 41, Talithe kumi. Only Mark gives us the original Aramaic here. Jesus' daily language was Aramaic. That was the language they spoke in Israel. But the New Testament being written in Greek and the other writers they give us the Greek translation, uh, little girl arise. But it is only Mark here who gives the very words of Jesus in his native tongue in Aramaic, talithe kumi, or in some of your translations, talithe kum. Talithe means a youth or a lamb. 
and is translated little lamb or, or little girl. It's, it's an endearing term. It would be like us today saying something similar to honey or sweetie or little one. The second thing that Jesus says to her is, is kumi, which means arise to get up. This is an intimate phrase here. This is an ordinary phrase, a routine phrase used by a mom that would probably wake up her little girl for school in the morning. Honey, it's time to get up. And our Lord would take such an ordinary phrase and he would make it special. Do you have a picture of this? Jesus takes this little girl by her lifeless hand and he speaks to her softly and tenderly, my little lamb, honey, wake up. And immediately, in verse 42, she gets up. And not only is she brought back to life, but to complete health. For it says that she starts walking again. You notice this. There's no rehabilitation here. There's no recovery. There's no assistance. She walks as normal as any 12-year-old child, which is what Mark reiterates here. This is how it is in every single miracle that Jesus ever did. There's no place in the Bible where there's a therapist, an occupational therapist or a physical therapist that came and helped a person who's just been healed get their strength back, okay? Every miracle is a complete miracle of God. And this is no exception. And you note the effect that this had on those who witnessed this miracle and they were immediately overcome with amazement. More literally, they were astonished with great astonishment. A moment ago, she was lifeless, and now she was walking around full of energy and full of life like that of any 12-year-old. And these parents are overjoyed over this. And yet Jesus says something interesting to them. He says, don't tell anyone. Despite what's happened here, verse 43, it says he strictly charged them that no one should know this. There are other times where Jesus gives the same instruction during the early part of his ministry. And at first glance, it doesn't make sense, right? Why would the Lord say that? Wouldn't this be an opportunity to testify to the Lord's power? Wouldn't he be able to draw more disciples as a result? And then my question is, what makes this occasion different from the healing of the demoniac just a day before? Where if you remember, after Jesus heals this demon-possessed man and casts out the demons, he says to this man, go and tell everyone. And now a day later, he says to Jairus and his wife, don't tell anyone. Why? The reason why is because of people's messianic expectations. Many had their expectations of what the Messiah was like and what he came to do. Not unlike how there are people today that have expectations of who God is, what he should be doing in my life, and how he should be relating to us in this world. And Jesus, knowing this, he didn't want for his works to lead people astray and detract from his mission, and his mission being to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to go to the cross for our sin. And yet, despite taking these measures, people still missed it. People themselves rather than Jesus himself. And this was prevalent in Galilee, which is where Jesus is currently at among the Jews. But the healing of the demon-possessed man took place across the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis, a Gentile region. 
and there weren't the same sort of issues of messianic expectations among the Gentiles. And so Jesus deemed it good for this man to tell everyone. And all the while, telling Jairus and his wife to tell no one. And in a way, Jesus is suggesting that, you know what, this will take care of itself. The news will spread. Because, well, the funeral has been canceled. This girl is alive and everybody's going to see that. Right? The word will go forth. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about that. Instead, worry about getting your daughter something to eat, he says in verse 43. What he's saying is, be with your daughter. Share this moment together. Have a meal with her and enjoy this gracious gift of God. Celebrate what, what God has done right, and give thanks to him. I love what John MacArthur says that in some ways he's really reminding us that we are worshipers before we're witnesses. Before we rush to share testimony, we need to stay and worship and then go. Tell the Lord how grateful that you are before you tell people. When the Lord is gracious toward you, let us not take that for granted, but let us instead praise God. And so that's how the story concludes. But let me just end with two observations as it relates to this last point. And what I want to say is that this account is all about Jesus healing and faith. And I know that's a very unoriginal title, but that, that's what I use for this message. It is all about Jesus healing and faith, but while the story is about all of these things, it is first and foremost about Jesus. And you see the relationship of, of how knowing more of who he is gives us greater faith. I want you to notice, firstly, how this account, it gives us a glimpse into the heart of Christ. We see God's heart here. Do you ever think about the significance of how Jesus healed this little girl? And specifically, how he holds her hand. If Jesus is the all-powerful God who spoke the world into existence, who creates life and also takes away life, who is the God who upholds the universe in his hand, Jesus could have simply healed Jairus' daughter from afar. He could have given a word and raised this girl to life and it would be done from where he's at. Right? But that's not who God is. He is not like the impersonal gods of false religion. He is not distant. He is not cold. Jesus is personal. He is tender. And he is, he is loving where he delights to know us in such an intimate manner. He is a God who seeks to know us. And he goes to great lengths to pursue wayward sinners like us. You notice that he went out of his way to reach these three characters that we come across here. And I didn't mention this, but you see how he went out of his way to reach the demoniac. You realize that in that famous account, right, of Jesus calming the wind and the waves, Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they're risking their lives to go and meet one man, and that's it. The Lord has a divine appointment with this demon-possessed man that he wanted to encounter so that this man might be healed. And after doing so, our Lord is turned away by the people of the Decapolis because they were scared. And so after all this trouble in getting there, 
They healed this one man, and then they go back, and that was it. They go only for him. And now returning, he encounters the woman with this bleeding problem who touches Jesus and then attempts to slip away, and yet our Lord goes after her also. And he does the same with this little girl. He didn't have to go to the house. He didn't have to call her what he called her. He didn't have to hold this little girl's hand if he wanted to heal her. And yet he does so to give us a glimpse into the heart of God. How assuring this is to know that this is who God is. Because we can find ourselves in this scene. For we are all like this helpless child. When you were a child and your hand was held by your parents, and you recall those days and you felt safe. You were wrong, of course, because there are bad parents. And even the best parents are imperfect and, and they will make mistakes. But here is a God who has you by his hand and who will go through the darkest of night with you and stares death in the face and will tell you that everything will be okay. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust my strong hand. And it will be. Second, we, we, and lastly, we see a glimpse of our future resurrection. This scene is a picture of our spiritual resurrection and the physical one that we will have. What we have to understand is that for this little girl, and however great this miracle was, the fact of the matter is, is that she would die once again. And every one of us will die one day. And our hope of a resurrection can only be found in the one who has defeated death himself and resurrected. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The significance of Jesus touching this girl's hand is that just as touching the hemorrhaging woman made Jesus unclean, touching this dead girl made him unclean as well. And there is the picture of the gospel. See, Jesus comes into our world, and what he does is he takes our uncleanness. He takes our sin, and he bears it on the cross, and he dies for it in our place. But then he defeats death and sin when he rose again so that those who were unclean might trust in Jesus and be made clean, that they may be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Right? Jesus, he makes it possible right, for him to hold our hand and to effectually say, little lamb, wake up, and we wake up. Because he went to the cross and he went through the greatest darkness there is when he bore the judgment that was ours to bear and unlike us, he had no hand to hold him. There was no one there and in fact, he faced this alone. Why? So that we would never have to face this. And he died and he rose again. And because he lives, you can live. He has conquered death for you and me. John chapter 11, if you believe in me, he said, you'll never die. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, death is nothing more than sleep, which then turns into eternal life for those who trust in our Lord, where we are made alive in Christ. And then one day, one glorious day, there will be a resurrection to come physically when the Lord will one day call us to be with him and our bodies will join with our souls in heaven. And, and I don't want to get too theological here, maybe another time, 
but there is a glorious resurrection morning to come, and we will know that when he gathers the flock, not one little lamb will be missing. And my question to you is, are you numbered among them? Our Lord desires for us to trust in Jesus for this salvation, for this hope beyond this life, that we will be raised up once again spiritually and physically with our Lord. Trust in him for this. And believer, trust in him for this life until that day. Let us honor the Lord as we go through life trusting him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can have a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ that is manifested here. Lord, we thank you that you came to seek after us because you love us. And you gave your life for us that our debt of sin might be paid. But the hope that we have is that we don't serve a dead Savior. We, we worship a living one. The one who rose from the grave, who triumphs over death. The one who calls us to faith that we might have life as well. We thank you, Lord, for revealing more of who you are to us. And we ask that our faith would be strengthened as a result. As we are reminded of this God who is both sovereign and, and all-powerful and yet is so good, so kind to us, who loves us even when we don't deserve it. Would our faith and trust be deepened? Lord, it is our desire to please you in this way Lord, because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.